Well, hey, hey, everybody. This is Christian Massar with another episode of Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Um, you may notice from the last episode, uh, the sound might be a little bit more different again. Um, this The reason for this is I'm back in the same room where I've recorded previous podcasts. So the sound the sound might be a bit different from the last time. Um, and also I got the, I have the microphone on a stack of books. So, so, you know, to make it get it closer to me so that it doesn't sound so far away and everything. Uh, the books I have holding it up now are two Russian language books about ISIS for a, a current project. Uh, an issue of a history journal, uh, a Russian novel, Statsky Sovietnik, uh, which a friend of mine sent to me. Um, I need to finish reading it. And let's see, a book about Russian, Ukrainian, Georgian, Armenian, and Azeri cooking. And to top it all off, it's actually a book from 1815. Uh, looks like it was written by a, a British man, uh, but published in the United States, the very young United States. Um, it's, the book is about, it's called The Narrative of the Campaign in Russia. This is about uh, Napoleon's Eastern Front experiment, if we may put it that way, uh, when he tried to invade Russia in the early 19th century, and yeah, just the Coles Notes version here, it didn't go well. Uh, so here's another, uh, the podcast is actually about another military campaign that didn't go very well, um, and I'm going to be doing an analysis of the Japanese invasion of the Aleutian Islands. Uh, the Aleutian Islands, for those who don't know, um, you know, when you think about the Pacific War in, you know, the Pacific Theater in World War II uh, between the Americans, well, there were other countries too, but predominantly the Americans and um, the Japanese, um, you think of campaigns like you know, Midway, Tarawa, Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, uh, and things like that. But this, um, the Aleutian Islands campaign was when the Japanese actually tried to take, and they actually did succeed in taking some uh, some American islands off the coast of Alaska, called the Aleutian Islands. And uh, this campaign, as we will see, didn't go very well either. Um, so, and it happened at the same time as Midway, and that was Midway was an absolute disaster. And then the Japanese took some islands in the Aleutian Islands or the Aleutian chain and the Americans came with a with a campaign a few months later to well in, in the next year um, to take to take those islands back um, so with all that with a little bit of a background uh, I can do it I'm gonna do an analysis mostly maybe not so much of the campaign itself and who was involved in everything but more um, why the Japanese wanted to take these islands and whether or not this was a good plan and uh, in, in my, my thoughts on that. So uh, with that said, let's uh, jump right into it. So in the early phases of the Pacific War, the Japanese military command had created a grand plan to achieve dominance in the Pacific theater. Their hope was to destroy the American carrier fleet and capture Midway Island while simultaneously seizing the Aleutian Islands of Alaska. This was part of what was called uh, the Basic Plan. And the, the first phase was the Pearl Harbor attack, which was carried out on December 7th, 1941. So the objective of this attack was to destroy the American carrier fleet. And then the second phase was to capture Midway Island and, and take the Aleutians. So, so this, this is how they, they, they envisioned this plan working. If the Japanese were able to destroy the carrier fleet, this, was a, this would essentially cripple uh, the American... Uh, the American military from really responding at all um, to Japanese 
you know, uh, aggression or invasions um, in Asia. Because the Pacific Ocean, of course, is very vast and there's no, not very much, not very many places to land aircraft and um, resupply and everything. So they have, the Americans have to operate by a carrier fleet. Well, the Japanese have to as well um, to, to go out any, to any significant um, distance in, in the ocean. They have to use aircraft carriers. There's no choice. So if the Japanese are able to destroy this carrier fleet, the Americans would really, uh, it would, it's kind of an interesting exercise in her hypothetical history, and I won't go down this, but essentially the Americans would have to rely on destroyers, battleships, cruisers, submarines, and everything, but without a lot of air cover because they have no carriers. And then that way that uh, leaves them vulnerable to Japanese carrier-launched um, aircraft that could attack these these ships, right? So, um, so with the carrier fleet gone, the Americans would really have their hands tied. It would be very interesting to, well, <laughs> of course we can't delve into this, but it would be very interesting to know what uh, the Americans would have done if they lost, had lost their carrier fleet. And the second phase of the plan, like I said, is uh, to for the Japanese to capture Midway Island and take the Aleutian Islands off of Alaska. This would extend Japan, the Japanese Empire's defenses eastward. So they, essentially this would create a buffer zone to their, their eastern flank and allow them to respond to any American threat um, more, more effectively. And this was the idea. And so uh, the plan of this, uh, it, like if they were able to carry out this basic plan as they wanted, the Japanese would theoretically have had complete control of the Northern Pacific and also be free to strike out against Fiji, Australia, and even Hawaii. But unfortunately for the Japanese, Pearl Harbor did not achieve the objective. So the first phase of the basic plan did not succeed in destroying the American carrier fleet. And of course the Pearl Harbor attack, it killed about 2,000 American servicemen and, and um, ships were heavily damaged and the Arizona, the USS Arizona was sunk as well, but really it did not do nearly as much damage as, uh, as the Japanese had hoped. Uh, so they had to revise phase two. So instead of, uh, so the objective of destroying the American carrier fleet had to be moved to going out to Midway. So going out to Midway Island, instead of just taking it, now the Japanese want to draw out the American carrier fleet and destroy it there. That's how they're going to have to deal with that. But the idea of establishing the Aleutian Islands as an outer defense area was still considered um, after, after the second phase was revised. Um, on April 18, 1942, American Lieutenant Colonel James H. Doolittle had attacked Tokyo with 16 B B-25 Mitchell bombers. The raid was not completely unexpected, as some Japanese officers had already anticipated the need to protect the capital. But the Doolittle raid had been launched about 700 miles from Tokyo, from carriers. Uh, but the Japanese had expected such a raid would have been set out uh, only about 300 miles away. And this greatly confused the Japanese defenders. The Doolittle Raid increased fears of further attacks on the Japanese mainland, even though it did little actual damage. It also prompted Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, Yamamoto the commander of the, com the Japanese combined fleet, to build a picket line between the, mid between the Midway and Aleutian Islands. Before the attack, 
Yamamoto was mocked for thinking that the illusions could be used for such actions. But afterward, many thought that Doolittle bomber, Doolittle's bombers had actually left from the illusions, the only American territory which was within range of the Japanese mainland. And though the Japanese eventually discovered that the raid was carried out from aircraft carriers, they still feared that air bases would be set up in the, in the Aleutian Island chain, allowing the Americans to attack from the Aleutians to the Japanese mainland. Someone who has written in an extensive history of American naval operations during World War II is a man named Samuel Elliott Morrison. And his analysis gives valuable insight into the reasoning behind the Japanese planners of the Aleutian attack. He noted that the Japanese vision for the Aleutians was somewhat limited. Uh, the capture of these islands was simply meant to protect Japan from future attacks like the Doolittle Raid, and there were no plans to use the beachhead uh, to use the Aleutians as a beachhead from which to invade the United States or Canada. The Aleutian operation was also limited to the capture of the Atu, Kiska, and Adak Islands. Admiral Borshiro Hosogaya, the commander of the 5th Fleet, was assigned to capture the Aleutian Islands. From late May to early June 1942, Hosogaya's force was comprised of two aircraft carriers, seven cruisers, a dozen destroyers, minesweepers, a mine layer, and over 2,400 troops. The Aleutian Island campaign with the bombing of Dutch Harbor. It's, the purposes of this attack were, were to divert the Americans away from Midway, destroy American installations needed for the invasion of Japan, and support the push towards the Aleutians. In the wee, hour of June, in the wee hours of June 3rd, 1942, Japanese aircraft took off from the Ryujo and the Junyo, the two carriers assigned to Admiral Hosogaya's force. For 20 minutes, the Japanese pilots attacked enemy barracks and parked aircraft, killing just over 50 Americans. However, the damage was relatively light otherwise, as ships were virtually untouched. The Japanese also had to navigate through thick fog on the way to their target, which prevented some planes from even reaching Dutch Harbor in the first place. Their maps of the area were also old and unclear, forcing the pilots to decide on the spot whichever targets looked, looked valuable. A second 29-minute long attack was launched the next day on June 4th. Again, the damage this time was minor, aside from 18 killed Americans, some destroyed oil tanks, and damage done to the Northwestern, which was a ship being used as a makeshift barracks. At, at the same time as the second Dutch Harbor attack, the Battle of Midway, much further south, was turning out to be a disaster for the Japanese. By the time the Battle of Midway was over, Admiral Yamamoto had lost four aircraft carriers, a third of, Japanese com of Japan's combat pilots, and 3,500 personnel. Yet the Aleutian Islands operation continued, even though the loss at Midway had drastically changed the strategic situation. The Midway defeat had made the Aleutians worthless as part of an extended defense line, but the need to protect the Empire's northern flank was still seen as relevant, and it was hoped that the islands could serve as an airbase from which aircraft could, attass, uh, could harass American forces. The capture of American islands also proved to be a morale booster immediately after the Midway debacle. On the morning of June 7th, Japanese troops landed on Atu and Kiska. They met virtually no resistance from the island's small populations, which consisted of barely 40 people on Atu and only 10 weather station personnel on Kiska. However, one man was killed when he tried to escape. The Japanese soon consolidated their positions, 
on these islands by bringing in supplies and installing anti-aircraft guns. The rising sun had shined its light on a small piece of America. As said before, Adak was another island in the Aleutian chain originally slated for capture, but this idea was abandoned because pilots from the Junio had discovered an American airbase on Onalaska Island which would pose a threat to any Adak landing force. Onalaska was only 350 miles away from Adak. Admiral Hosogaya was also prepared to cancel the Adak landing anyway, and not many troops would have been dedicated to its capture had it gone ahead. This shows that Adak was fairly low on the Japanese priority list. Unfortunately for the Japanese, the Americans landed on Adak a few months later on August 30th and soon established an airfield of their own on this island. Adak was also in range of the, Jap of the now Japanese-occupied Kiska, which would allow American fighters to escort bombers on raids against Kiska. In fact, American and Canadian pilots were doing just that, bombing the Japanese invaders on Kiska. Yet, despite having lost a piece of their country, American planners were much more concerned about the rest of the war. There was, of course, the rest of the Pacific Theater. After the Battle of Midway, there were more battles to come. And the Nazi-Soviet War was still raging. Battles were also being fought in North Africa. So, compared to these other campaigns, the Japanese presence on, two, on some small, tiny islands on the Aleutian Islands, on the Aleutian chain, was, it was a small matter, really. And this was at least until January 1943, when at the Casablanca conference uh, between uh, the American, Soviet, and British leaders, it was decided that the occupied Aleutians should be taken that spring. The battle for Atu began when American forces landed there on May 11, 1943. The combat raged on until the 29th, when the Jap remaining Japanese soldiers made a furious bonsai charge against a hill called Engineer Hill. They almost defeated the Americans here, but they were ultimately beaten back. But Kiska still had to be recaptured, and it was predicted to be a tougher battle than the one for Atu. While only 2,000 Japanese soldiers had been stationed on Atu, there was an expected eight or 9,000 on Kiska, and they were well supplied and better equipped. A joint American-Canadian force of about 30,000 soldiers landed on Kiska on August, 14, August 15th. But the Japanese had already quit the island in late May or late July. The garrison, which had turned out to have only been comprised of 5,183 men, had slipped away in the fog. The Aleutian campaign was now over, and the islands were back in American hands. Now it's time to analyze the wisdom of the Aleutian campaign. It certainly looked good on paper. The capture of the Aleutians would have made sense if it had actually protected the Japanese Empire's northern flank and diverted American forces from Midway. But the Japanese Aleutian campaign was not such a great idea in reality. When the Japanese sent their force to take the Aleutians, they used assets that could have been useful elsewhere. Two of these assets were the Ryujo and the Junio, the previously mentioned carriers assigned to that mission. These ships carried 40 fighter planes, which could have been very useful at the Battle of Midway, providing cover for dive bombers and carriers. Also, as the Japanese were fighting to hold on to Guadalcanal in 1942, they maintained their presence in the Aleutians, even sending over a thousand troops to Kiska on December, December 2nd, 1942. Compared to Guadalcanal and other crucial battles, the Aleutian project was a waste of manpower. This much was clear in July 1943 when the Japanese, as I said, just left Kiska, not deeming it worth the fight to keep it. 
The imprudence, the imprudence of the Aleutian campaign is not clear only through hindsight. Japanese commander Minoru Genda, who was described as a, quote, brilliant air officer, expressed his own doubts about the endeavor. He saw the Aleutians as a dangerous distraction, taking forces away from the far more critical Midway operation, which was an opportunity to finally destroy the American carrier fleet. Genda wanted everything thrown into that effort, and he worried that the plan for the Aleutians was a sign that the Navy had lost sight of the urgency of that objective. Also, it was impractical to hope that the Aleutians could be used as a defensive picket line against American raids. We saw before how the Japanese loss at Midway made the Aleutians much less valuable. The vastness of the Pacific Ocean made an Aleutian frontier position even more impractical, as Japanese patrol planes could not hope to cover all the gaps in this defensive line. This would allow American ships to pass through with relative ease. After all, the carrier force from which Doolittle raided Tokyo was able to get within 700 miles of the Japanese mainland, and then it slipped away, escaping detection. Related to the plan for a picket line was the Japanese fear that the Americans could establish airfields on the Aleutians. These fears were somewhat justified as the Americans had built a 5,000-foot runway on Umnak Island, and in addition to the previously mentioned airbases on the Onalaska and Adak Islands. Umnak's airfield, though, was of poor quality, but it was still, able, it was still a valuable base from which fighters could defend the nearby Dutch harbor. If the Japanese had these islands, they certainly could have attacked American air and naval supply routes. Japanese fears were even more justified if we consider that sometime after the Battle of Atu, the Americans built yet another airfield there, from which bombers attacked the Japanese Kiro Islands. Despite this, however, the Aleutian weather was a constant menace as the Japanese flyers found when attacking Dutch Harbor in June 1942. While this would not completely nullify the Aleutians' potential value to the air war, the conditions would prove a constant hazard. Extreme winds, known as Williwa winds, and the constant threat of fog, so the foggy season actually starts around June 1st in this region, so the constant threat of fog and snow made, quote, flying weather the exception rather than the rule. Yes, the Americans were able to bomb Japanese territory from Atu, but the region's treacherous weather made large-scale strategic bombings runs simply impractical. As Morrison has said, quote, Any large-scale bombing offensive from the Aleutians would have expended bombers faster than they could be built. Because we need to consider, too, it's not just weather conditions when you're flying. You know, when a plane is sitting on the ground, uh, a cold weather will cold weather conditions will damage that airplane too while it's sitting on the ground. Uh, cold weather does, you know, with, uh, living here in uh, in Canada, we're, we experienced uh, around the Christmas season and up to about a few weeks ago, we had temperatures dropping down to about minus 35 degrees centigrade. That's almost minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So things break more easily. Um, airplanes have to deal with, uh, with icing. Uh, which is very dangerous. Uh, cars don't start um, as easily as they normally do. Uh, we helped move a friend, and things start things seem to break a bit more easily. You know, and not that we were being uncareful because we were being careful, but <laughs> but we have to be careful when moving. We have to be uh, also careful for ourselves. You know, as as humans, you know, we also have to be be careful as well. The body gets more tense and everything in colder weather, so machines break down too. So that's a that's a really long uh, rant about Canadian winters or something, but you know I don't I don't mind winter so 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 it's all good. But you know if I was on the Aleutians, 
at this time in 1943 or 1940 uh, around that time in uh, Manning and Airfield, I, I probably wouldn't be as so happy about winter. But what about using the Aleutians as an invasion route to the North American mainland? As we saw before, the Japanese had no real plans for such an endeavor. But on a map, the situation may look more threatening. Atu is the westernmost Aleutian island, and it is only about, quote, only 650 miles from the Kurils where the enemy had a naval and air base. And Atu was less than 2,000 miles from the Alaskan capital of Juneau. One may look at this map and think that in taking the Aleutians, the Japanese actually did threaten the mainland with invasion. Some Americans, such as Billy Mitchell at the time, believed that the Japanese would take this route to directly attack the states. But the reality changes when we look beyond a map's face value. Remember, something may look dangerous or interesting on paper, but in reality, it doesn't always work that way. Air distances were much greater than the surface distances just listed. Flying from Atu to the Japanese Industrial Center entailed a 2,000-mile trip, and it was 3,150 air, 3, air miles from the Kirills to Seattle, the closest American industrial center to Japan at the time. Japanese aircraft and ships would have had to travel these long distances to keep garrisons and invading forces alive, creating very long supply lines, making reinforcement a complicated, risky affair. So, just to think, imagine if the Japanese did invade Seattle um, from the Aleutian Islands. Okay, fine. They still have to get supplies all the way from Japan and the from the Kirils. I'm not sure if the Japanese had big garrisons in the Kiril Islands, but um, I would have to look at the numbers for that. I don't know those right away. So, But still, like I say, they would have to move an equivalent distance of 3,150 air miles. That's a long way. A lot can happen in that, uh, in that distance. And so this, and the risks of American attack, uh, American disruption of these supply lines, this was especially, this would have become especially true after Midway, as many Japanese leaders wanted to be cautious and save resources. And also with the, a lot of the Japanese carrier fleet destroyed at Midway, there's less protection for these hypothetical supply lines. So it's evident that geography and distances are not the only factors which must be considered when formulating a military strategy, as logistical concerns would be significant for Japanese force invading the American mainland from the Aleutians. Especially in wartime, the terrible flying weather would ground supply planes, and it would make organizing and deploying an invasion fleet very difficult. There was also the environment on the islands themselves, which supported very few resources and was inhospitable to armies. Morrison has said, Quote, all of the islands were very are very mountainous, with few places level enough for an airfield and few harbors affording shelter to large ships. Walking and driving are difficult in the island's thick tundra grass and underground volcanic ash, which can, sh which can easily turn to mud. So these places are terrible places from which to start an invasion. So one may think, well, what about the Americans? The Americans were able to send troops and everything to... Um, Normandy and attack Germany from there and there's a big Atlantic Ocean in the middle and everything okay that's fine but also the uh, the air war was not as big in the Atlantic uh, over the Atlantic Ocean itself there were U-boats and everything like that and there were certainly carriers involved I'm sure but I don't know as much about the carrier war in the Atlantic theater but it's definitely not as as big as when the Pacific War and also 
and also the the reality is that the Americans had a very big ally, very powerful ally, right next to Germany and mainland Europe. They had the United Kingdom. So the Americans actually set up in the UK and they launched their invasion from there. So it was a lot easier. The UK uh, has a much bigger logistical base. Uh, it has much, it's a much bigger area than the Aleutian Islands and it's a much easier place to get supplies between between U the UK and mainland Europe because I believe it only took about eight minutes for German pilot during the Battle of Britain it only took German pilots eight minutes to fly across the English Channel so compare that to flying 3150 miles from the Kural from the Kurils to uh, Seattle <laughs> right so um, and without any without any significant base other than a little bit of a small inhospitable hostile Aleutian Islands right so it's a it's a bit of a it's a very different comparison very different situations but the American government was still concerned about the situation in the Aleutians even if they were little more than a nuisance in enemy hands the government and war department needed to take back the islands because it was a blemish to have lost American soil the reversal of this embarrassing situation was costly the battles for these tiny Alaskan islands killed 549 Americans and over 2,300 Japanese troops. Allied troops also died on Kiska, even though there was no battle for it. Uh, friendly fire and booby traps killed 25 American troops and a small number of Canadian soldiers as well. Other larger campaigns also overshadowed the battle for the Aleutians. So for a long time, the sacrifices made in these frozen landscapes were largely forgotten. To sum up the idea of the Aleutian Island campaign, we can use the words of Commander Mitsuo Fushida. This man had led the aerial attack on Pearl Harbor. When talking about the idea of establishing a defensive net between the Aleutians and the Midway, he said it looked like, quote, grammar school strategy. A plan that looked good in theory due to geography and the fears of aerial bombardment against the Japanese mainland did not end up so well for the Japanese Empire. The realities of bad weather long distances and inhospitable terrain turned this very interesting but ultimately ill-informed theory into a disappointing and costly exercise. Well, I certainly hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, it was definitely a fun one to write. It was uh, analyzing the, and just looking at a campaign and not just looking at the campaign, what it did, what happened and everything, but also, you know, asserting, okay, was this a good plan? So there was a little bit more analysis needed. So that was pretty fun. Um, uh, some other sources I used, of course, I um, already mentioned Samuel Elliot, Morris, uh, Elliot Morrison. Uh, and he wrote a multi-volume work um, called History of United States Naval Operations in World War II. Um, and the one I, there's a, there were two of these volumes. Uh, I'm not sure how many volumes it, there are in total. Maybe about 12, maybe about 10 or 12. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. But I used uh, some information from volumes 4 and 7. Um, and so volume 4 talks about uh, Coral Sea, Midway, and submarine actions, May 1942 to August 40, 1942. And volume 7 was entitled Aleutians, Gilberts, and Marshalls, June 1942, April 1944. There was a lot of good information from there. But uh, some other sources I used were, um, were books by uh, Brian Garfield, The Thousand Mile War, World War II in Alaska, and the Aleutians. And also there was another one too, specifically about the Aleutian campaign, Brendan Coyle, 
War on Our Doorstep, The Unknown Campaign on North America's West Coast. And uh, also, maybe I should have mentioned this earlier, but actually the interesting uh, point to remember, and uh, my, my dates are going to be fuzzy, so I, I don't have the all the facts um, on the top of my head right now, but there was an there were a few Japanese attacks on the North American mainland. Um, there was one time where uh, a, a small submarine, a uh, small Japanese submarine, uh, uh, surfaced at nighttime uh, near near Comox in British Columbia, Canada. I believe it, I believe it was near Comox, and they uh, they fired artillery shells trying to destroy the lighthouse. And uh, I guess what happened was, and it was at night, and so they didn't hit the lighthouse. And then there was another case. It was in Oregon, I believe, where a Japanese pilot he took off from a submarine and uh, tried to firebomb. Uh, a forest in Oregon, and I, I apologize. I don't remember the exact name, or I don't remember the name of the pilot, um, or exactly where where he was. But he had engine problems, I believe it was, and he he had to bail out, and he became a POW uh, on American soil. Um, but it, so just to just to kind of go back to this Aleutian Islands plan, if so, if people were, were afraid of the Aleutians becoming a major base of Japanese attack on the Americans or Canadians these attacks were launched by submarines that I just mentioned. So they were launched by submarines so that the Aleutians didn't really <laughs> didn't really uh, um, come into play in that. There wasn't anything like a massive army marching into Juno or Whitehorse. So, um, so that's a, just an interesting little uh, postscript, I suppose, to this podcast. Uh, so I, I don't think I've ended on a postscript before except uh, maybe the first one. Um, but uh, with all that said... Oh, I hope you guys are all doing well, and uh, we'll see you in the next one.